Coming up on Studio Berlin, a closer look at the protests in Hong Kong. The obvious actual cause in June was the attempt of the Hong Kongese government to push through the extradition law. Pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong described Hong Kong as a new Berlin, a ground zero for a new Cold War. What does Germany make of Wong's comparison? China is a much bigger and more powerful, more resilient uh, system than the GDR has probably ever been. And how do the Hong Kong protests influence Germany's relationship with China? So now is the time, really, for the German state to stand up for human rights and to stand up against China. Next on Studio Berlin. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Berlin, our weekly current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. Each week, we're taking a closer look at the events shaping our lives here in Germany's capital. I'm your host, Noah Barkin, and in today's show, we'll be discussing the protests in Hong Kong and how this is affecting the relationship between Germany and China. We've seen more violent clashes between protesters and police in Hong Kong over the past week. And Joshua Wong, the pro-democracy activist, was in Berlin earlier this month. He described Hong Kong as the new Berlin, ground zero for a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. How is this going down in Germany and how is the government of Angela Merkel dealing with this? Joining me in the studio today to discuss these issues is Melissa Chan, an American journalist who has worked in China and continues to write about China from Berlin. Welcome, Melissa. Hi. We'll also be talking with Kristin Shi Kupfer of the Mercator Institute for China Studies here in Berlin. Kristin heads the think tank's research on Chinese politics, society, and the media. Welcome, Kristin. Hi. So, Kristin, let's take a step back. These protests in Hong Kong have been going on since June. Why did they start and why are they still going on? Right. So, I mean, the obvious actual cause in June was the attempt of the Hong Kongese government to push through the extradition law, which would have allowed the government to send back mainly to mainland China criminals or people who were wanted there for, I mean, on the surface, economic issues, but which also could be framed just used as a reason for also to investigate and get back um, politically uh, unlikable, so to say, dissidents. So that was the the actual cause and the deeper cause. And I think that's the main reason why the protests are still ongoing is an, an obvious distrust, not only vis-a-vis the Hong Kongese government, how they handle the whole issue of autonomy, of rights. Of course, there's also a social economic dimension to it, but also a larger, a deeper distrust against Beijing and the way they have displayed increasing influence over the city in the last couple of years. Well, Melissa, German Chancellor Angela Merkel was in Beijing in early September, earlier this month. What did she say about the protests and what has the reaction here in Germany been to what's going on in Hong Kong? Well, I believe she said that the conflict should be resolved through peaceful means. You know, it's a Tricky balancing actually has to do, right? She was visiting Beijing with a delegation of a lot of business people from Germany, and there was a lot of criticism or concern before her trip in terms of what she would actually say, because there's a lot of 
uh, German business interests in China. In fact, I would say that this week, Benjamin Haas, former reporter with The Guardian, has just dropped quite a bombshell of a report, I would say, a, a chart, basically, of months and months of work. He's been looking at European companies and their involvement in Xinjiang, in the far western part of China, where a lot of Uyghurs, and according to the UN, an estimated one million uh, Uyghurs, this ethnic minority, um, have been held in detention centers. So the economic relationship between Europe and Germany and China is so connected that uh, it's very tricky for any leader to say much about things connected to human rights, whether it's happening in Hong Kong, whether it's happening in the far western part of China, uh, when they also have to have economic considerations. Well, I want to come back to the economic relationship between Germany and China later in the show. Joshua Wong, the Hong Kong activist, was in Berlin days after Merkel was in China, and he described Hong Kong as the new Berlin. Let's listen to a clip here where he explains what he meant by this. Why I would say Hong Kong is the new Berlin in the new Cold War, I think the reason behind is we strongly aware Hong Kong people identify ourselves as the frontier to against authoritarian rule of Beijing. Kristen, do you agree that Hong Kong is the new Berlin? Do you think that's an appropriate comparison to make? Well, as a scholar, I probably have to say it depends. So yes and no. Um, Yes, of course, I do believe that the picture kind of captures the systemic competition, which the Hong Kong protests are also a symbol of. Uh, on the one inside, a liberal democracy or close to that, Hong Kong, at least a democratic system. And on the other hand, of course, an, an authoritarian or even, I would say, a totalitarian regime. But different from the, the circumstances in the 80s that now, of course, so to say, um, the totalitarian regime is the much bigger and the much more powerful one. The former Eastern um, the uh, GDR has has been much less powerful, weaker, and was really declining at that stage. So I, I do think the image is, is powerful and has some some value. Uh, yeah, the, the historic situation, that, that's the challenging thing, of course, now that China is a much bigger and more powerful, more resilient uh, system than the GDR has probably ever been. Joshua Wong, the Hong Kong activist, when he was here in Berlin, he met with Germany's foreign minister, Heiko Maas, Melissa, the meeting with Moss did not go down well with the Chinese government. Uh, the Chinese ambassador here in Berlin summoned the press and condemned this meeting. Why such an uproar? This is pretty standard, actually. I mean, the Chinese foreign ministry have for years been expressing their hurt feelings whenever any state or any time they receive criticism about their human rights record, they always say, you know, it's almost become a joke, right? Uh, you've hurt the feelings of the one billion Chinese people. And one thing I would say, though, is that we've started seeing more and more of this in terms of Chinese diplomats being very aggressive about responding uh, to this. It used to be that it was more calculated and, you know, it would happen occasionally, but they're much more aggressive about it. And I think it is uh, in parallel with their growing confidence in their economy and their political power. Kristen, I wanted to come back to you. One of the most high-profile Chinese dissidents, uh, the artist Ai Weiwei, he just left Berlin after four years here, and he explained why he was leaving in an interview last month with the German newspaper Die Welt. He said Germany was not an open society, that it wasn't open to other ideas. What do you make of this? 
Well, as a German, of course, that's a bit of a challenging question. And being self-reflective and critical, yes, probably we do have issues to still kind of incorporate people with other uh, backgrounds. But I, I talked with this with a, over with a couple of Chinese friends, and they were saying um, he's overdone it a little bit because he didn't speak German. He didn't really make an effort to become part of the German culture. So. I mean, at the end of the day, he's an artist and let's not forget he's a political artist and a provocateur. And he said a lot of bold statements when he was in China. So it's not that much of a surprise having followed him for the better part of a decade that he would be saying things that would get people's knickers in a twist. Kristen, back to you. Do you think Berlin has a special meaning for Chinese dissidents and can Germany live up to their expectations? We had quite an inflow of Chinese prominent like artists or writers. We have Liao Yiwu, we have Liu Xia, of course, the wife of uh, Liu Xiaobord. And you could read this in a couple of ways. Obviously, there is a kind of uh, reputation, maybe also spread. There are networks, there are people who feel that compared to maybe other European cities or countries that the German government at least has taken up this cause of human rights and Clearly, obviously, for various reasons on various levels, the official level, uh, maybe even more than the societal level, that Berlin has become quite a place for Chinese dissidents. As Kirsten mentioned, there is Liu Xia, the wife and widow of Nobel Peace Laureate Liu Xiaobo. There's Liao Yiwu, the, the writer and novelist. These are the big names, but also um, in Berlin are a lot of lesser known names. In fact, I would argue that there are quite a few Chinese that aren't famous yet that have made Berlin their home in their 20s and 30s, whether they are artists, visual artists, filmmakers, documentarians, and they find this place cheap compared to Paris or New York or London. So for economic reasons, there's a lot of incentive for young artists from China to be here in Berlin. And second of all, of course, is the censorship issue, right? They're free from that. And what is different between uh, the the artists and intellectuals of today in Berlin uh, versus maybe in the past, if they were escaping or leaving authoritarian regimes, is that you can move back and forth more easily. And I think that's going to be very interesting and fruitful in the coming years. Well, there are certainly interesting changes going on in Germany's relationship with China. After the break, we'll delve deeper into this shift. You're listening to Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM. We'll be right back. Hey, you, you've been hearing and reading the news all day. So what are you getting out of it? Are you smarter, more informed, better prepared for your dinner party later tonight? Well, The Takeaway has you covered. We ask the tough questions, we hold lawmakers accountable, and if something just doesn't seem right, we ask, how did we get here? It's The Takeaway with me, Tanzina Vega. Tune in to The Takeaway weeknights at 6 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin on KCRW Berlin. I'm Noah Barkin, and today we're talking about China and its relationship with Germany with Kristin Shi Kupfa of the Mercator Institute for China Studies and Melissa Chan, an American journalist and former China correspondent who's based here in Berlin. Uh, Kristin, I wanted to talk a little bit about the broader relationship between Germany and China. For many years, it seems like German politicians viewed China mainly through an economic prism. 
And that seems to be changing. There's a lot of anxiety now about China leapfrogging Germany to become a leader in new technologies. There's rising concern about China's human rights record. How, how would you describe the relationship today? Well, I do believe that the economic lens is still the very core part of the relationship. But um, this has shifted indeed from a more, let's say, complementary or win-win kind of relationship, or we both had our strengths and our weaknesses to a, a perception that China has become more and more a systemic competitor. Uh, and of course, also issues in terms of reciprocity, in terms of bilateral investment agreement, issues which um, Germany and Europe has hoped that they could make progress with China to mitigate also the increasing uh, difficult and competitive economic relations have been stalling. So I I would say that even within the economic circles, there is a, an increasing amount of uh, anxiety or also anger, frustration, the way the economic relationship with China has been progressing. Melissa, you were talking earlier about German companies that have a presence in China. Can Germany afford to take a confrontational approach with China, given how much its companies depend on the market there? I suppose it can't. I suppose lots of countries feel like they can't. I feel like if you look at Europe, a lot of countries feel like they can't. Uh, we see Italy signing on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, we see a discourse in Germany about how to engage with China when from a values perspective, the answer should be really clear, especially in this country with this history. Uh, right now, we have a situation where China has detained one million people in its far western region in detention camps. Some people would go so far as to call them concentration camps. And especially since my time living in Berlin and in this country, it's been driven home to me that Germans have a strong sense of responsibility for their history and extra commitment to human rights because of the history of Germany in the 20th century. So now is the time really for the German state to stand up for human rights and to stand up against China for this vast human rights violation. And we're not seeing, frankly, the strong language needed, not just in Germany, but across Europe on this matter. And I feel like we can't just ignore it. Kristen, I wanted to go to you on this. Uh, you know, the issue of values, as Melissa points out in Xinjiang, over a million Muslims have been detained in these camps. Uh, there's also you know, China's building this formidable surveillance state using big data, facial recognition technologies, etc. Tell me what you think about this. Yeah, just to reinforce it, basically to add what Melissa has just said. Also, the argument is that it's not possible. We, we are too economically in, uh, interdependent. But if we look at East Asia, for example, I mean, Korea, South Korea, Japan, also Taiwan, they made a, a constant effort to really get more disentangled with China. And they managed to, in a much better way than Europe and Germany did to kind of yeah, free themselves a little bit at least from this this economic pressure. So sometimes it's it's good to look into other regions or other countries and not saying, oh, we just can't do it. I mean, this is a kind of argument which is just not valid. I strongly would support your view that Germany and also German companies, and of course they have started to do this now, looking into 
strategies to diversify and to decrease dependency from this huge market, which is difficult, of course, uh, for, for different sectors. Take the automobile industry, but at least that is if you believe in the values and the surroundings, which German companies also profit from here in Germany, right? The rule of law, um, this is also part of liberal democracy. It's also an economic system. So they really should and could do an effort, I think. One thing with the U.S.-China trade war, and we don't know the results of that. We don't know the impact, the negative impact on the U.S. economy. Uh, but one thing is clear is that it's very possible to decouple very quickly, uh, far more quickly than most people, I think, realized or imagined was possible between the two economies. I mean, they're still, of course, tightly intertwined. But you can see within a year, really, how quickly uh, companies have decoupled, have started thinking about moving factories and supply chains to other parts of the world, whether it's in Latin America or Southeast Asia. We're going to take another short break on Studio Berlin. And afterwards, we're going to talk about the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China, which is coming up on October 1st. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KCRW Berlin. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by emailing us at sponsorships at kcrwberlin.org or online at kcrwberlin.com slash sponsorships. You're listening to Studio Berlin on KCRW Berlin, 104.1 FM. I'm Noah Barkin. We're talking with Kristin Schiekupfa of the Mercator Institute for China Studies and Melissa Chan, a Berlin-based journalist. I wanted to talk a little bit about the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. That's coming up on October 1st. Anniversaries have a special function in China. What can we expect on October 1st? Of course, we can expect, and this is what the CCP wants to display, to present itself as the sole representative of the People's Republic of China without the Communist Party, no new China. This is always what the CCP has displayed. So we will have a lot of colorful celebrations. We will have a military parade. We will have full-fledged propaganda in terms of the achievements, again, closely tied to the CCP. But interestingly, and I, I really wonder how this is balanced, we also have this narrative of an, a struggle uh, which Xi Jinping very much kind of has reinforced that cadres and the people should continue to strive and to struggle for the future of the People's Republic of China. So overall, yeah, colorful celebrations with a bit of an undertone that we have to constantly keep working. And of course, so the core message will be this is only possible with the CCP in leadership. Well, interestingly, next month would also have been the 70th anniversary of East Germany. But as we all know, the Berlin Wall fell 30 years ago. There was no Tiananmen Square-like crackdown here. Germany reunified. Melissa, how tight do you think is the Communist Party's grip on power today? That's difficult to prognosticate. Things always look very strong and put together until they aren't, as a lot of people in Germany would tell you. No one, it seems like, predicted that the wall would fall when it did. I guess looking at it in the long term, like all dynasties, which the Communist Party very much is a dynasty, 
it will at some point fall. What's interesting is if you take that comparison and look at Xi Jinping, he's been an irresponsible emperor. He doesn't even have a successor. In fact, he's made it impossible right now to really get a sense of who would be in charge if he somehow passed away. I mean, let's get real. This guy is pretty old. He's a bit portly. He could easily have a heart attack. And at that point, we don't even know, you know, who would be in charge. I mean, that's one of those acts of God that could really challenge uh, the leadership at this time. So, I mean, it's hard to guess how long the Communist Party will be in charge in mainland China, but it could disappear very quickly. What, what do you think, Kristen? Do, do the protests in Hong Kong, the economic pressure from the U.S., did they pose a risk to Xi or to the Communist Party, do you think? I mean, we can look at the factors which we have to watch when we talk about really how long or how severe um, the crisis is, the CCP is. And I mean, clearly economic performance has become an issue depending also on how long the conflict with the U.S. will be uh, ongoing. And of course, also looking at the Belt and Road Initiative, I think some pressures to perform to really bring home some success stories. We also have have had a lot of like rather negative um, press or pressure on Xi Jinping himself. So, so I do think that Hong Kong and the U.S. trade conflict at least put pressure on him as the CCP leader. Melissa, you worked in China, probably still have friends there. What What is your sense of how ordinary Chinese see the current situation, uh, the U.S.-China trade war, the protests in Hong Kong? Do you have a sense that the Chinese population or the majority of Chinese really support Xi? That's very difficult in a state that's authoritarian where you can't do regular polling on its citizens and its citizens can't express how they feel about their leaders because they can't vote. Having said that, uh, the sense I get having followed China over the years is it definitely has become more nationalist. And that's not just a top-down thing, but that uh, it's something that is also from the ground up. Uh, the, the Chinese protesters that you see on university campuses uh, beyond China, whether it's in the United States or in Australia, expressing their pride and counter-protesting often against Hong Kong student protesters, to a certain extent, that, that is real. They have bought into their propaganda. And they would push back and say, uh, we're not brainwashed. This is not propaganda. We believe this. We like our government. We think our system is better. And I would say that a majority of Chinese think this way. Well, Kristen, I read recently in the Süddeutsche uh, newspaper that there were pro-Hong Kong protests in Hamburg. And there were Chinese officials who were seen taking photographs or video of the protesters, presumably putting them on a blacklist or something like that. This is a very difficult issue for the German officials to deal with if you have Chinese officials in the country uh, monitoring protesters. Right, exactly. I mean, that's part of, I would call it, a competition of narratives or a competition of between the CCP or the Chinese officials on the one hand and then, so to say, what the German and other European societies offer as explanations and narratives to also, of course, then the Chinese audiences here. And it's, of course, also part a display of surveillance and monitoring to, to frighten Chinese who would like to speak up either against the CCP policy or for, for the Hong Kongese government. As long as it 
doesn't touch their personal life. There's no restriction in terms of censorship of their favorite shows or in their hometown. There's there's no crackdown on in, environmental movements, for example. As long as that doesn't touch their personal life, I, I do sense that young people also support Xi Jinping as a strong leader, somebody who wins respect for China and uh, Chinese. And this is something, in a sense, very natural, that people want to be proud of, of their their country. So I think it's, it's sometimes it's a very mixed package. I mean, a lot of young Chinese tell me we're Aiguo, we love our country, but not necessarily Aidang, love, love the party, right? The, the restrictions and the the non-pluralistic way we can inform ourselves. So it's a mix, but I, I do believe Xi Jinping is seen as a as a strong leader who can represent China internationally. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. That's it for our latest edition of Studio Berlin. Thanks to Kristin Shi Kupfa of the Mercator Institute for China Studies and Melissa Chan, an American journalist based here in Berlin, for this fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Noah Barkin. For more information about this show, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a great weekend. <laughs>